Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for more information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Tom Lombardo. Tom Lombardo is the director of the Centre for Future Consciousness. He is a fellow and executive board member of the World Futures Studies Federation. Tom has published nine books and numerous articles. His newest books include Future Consciousness, The Path to Purposeful Evolution, and Science Fiction, The Evolutionary Mythology of the Future, Volume 1, Prometheus to the Martians. He is a graduate of the University of Connecticut and the University of Minnesota, and a graduate fellow of Cornell University. Tom lives in Phoenix, Arizona. Welcome to FuturePod, Tom. Yes, hello, Peter, and uh, thank you for having me on to talk about uh, my uh, views on the uh, study of the future. Pleasure, Tom. So, Tom, question one. The uh, Everyone has their story of how they became a member of the Futures and Foresight community, so what's the Tom Lombardo story? Well, the Tom Lombardo story actually goes back to when I was about six or seven years of age, and I became uh, fascinated uh, with uh, science fiction, H.G. Uh, Wells' uh, great novel and the movie they made out of it, The Time Machine. When I was really young, I actually wrote some science fiction stories when I was in first and second grade. <laughs> I, I guess I always had an inclination toward teaching, too. I also taught, uh, when I was in sixth and seventh grade, uh, the history of the American Civil War, which I became very fascinated with. So I started off with an interest in the future, an interest in history, an interest in teaching from very early on. I didn't, in college, uh, focus in any, or even in graduate school, in any sense, on the topic of the future. Uh, my PhD was in psychology. I studied philosophy and intellectual history, but I kept uh, my interest in science fiction going and actually had many, many different topics that fascinated me. I think one thing about a lot of futurists, including myself, is that we have diverse interests yeah. uh, as we're developing. And that was that was what I was uh, pursuing. Uh, I got interested in one point in cosmology and systems theory, was a head psychologist in a big hospital for the seriously mentally ill. So all through uh, my early education, I was bopping around between a whole different set of topics that fascinated me. But there was always that undercurrent of uh, science fiction going on that I kept reading and playing around with in my mind. When I came out to Arizona, I came out as the chair of psychology and philosophy at Rio Salado College. They asked me to create an integrative course for the graduating um, undergraduates, something that would pull together their arts and science education. And it dawned on me one day that a beautiful topic to present integrative education under would be the study of the future. Yeah. And I didn't really have any uh, specific educational background in it, so I uh, did a intense self-study of the uh, area, reading uh, Alvin Toffler and Nesbitt and Wendell Bell and Walter Truett Anderson and people both in the futures field and outside of the futures field and uh, uh, created a course from scratch. In fact, even wrote a textbook for students uh, back in the early 90s. Uh, because I actually taught myself uh, the area, I never became wedded to any one particular approach. And I read philosophers, psychologists, people that were sort of spacey and way out, people much more conservative. So as I was pulling together my understanding of uh, future studies, I wasn't stuck into any one particular framework. Yep. Early on, though, I began to use the expression future consciousness because I thought there was something about that concept that hit upon an important issue regarding our understanding of how humans conceptualize and deal with the future. 
Now, keep in mind, I had a psychology background. So when I looked at the study of the future, I thought in terms often as a psychologist, how is the future understood and represented within the human mind? But I also thought like an educator in that, how could we integrate the study of the future into our educational curriculum? I actually started a Futures Institute back in the late 1990s at Rio Salada College, and about that time is when I joined the World Future Society, and I started to meet futurists and give presentations. But I also, at the same time, met the uh, founder of the Wisdom page, Copthorne McDonald, and became interested in the topic of wisdom Mm. and how that connected with the future as well. The college I was at, Rio Salada College, didn't really, after a few years, support my interest in the uh, in future studies and the studies of the future. And so eventually, my wife, Jeannie, and I decided that we would uh, found our own organization, which was the Center for Future Consciousness. Right. That happened, say, around, oh, 2000 to 2005, somewhere in there. And it was probably about that time also that I began to publish articles and I wrote two books that I published that I'll come back to, The Evolution of Future Consciousness and Contemporary Futurist Thought. And when I came at the, the topic of future studies, I came at it integratively. What are the different dimensions to uh, the study of the future? What are the different approaches to the study of the future? And uh, given the fact that I had been a self-study person, I actually pulled together approaches to the future that ran all across the gamut from in religion and philosophy to technology to future studies. I became pretty good friends at that time, actually very good friends with Wendell Bell and read his stuff, which was very important in terms of formulating my ideas. Probably, I guess it was like 2005, 2010, I decided that the college I was in was too conservative and wasn't really supporting my work enough in future consciousness and future studies. And so I eventually retired in 2010 because I just wanted to devote myself full-time to writing and speaking. So between 2010 and 2020, I've written five books and given a variety of presentations internationally and actually well, it was about 2005, I joined the World Future Study Federation as well, and then the Association of Professional Futurists. So I bopped around between lots of different <laughs> disciplines, always had an interest in science fiction, always was, uh, I guess I, I see myself as a scholar who likes to read, understand, make sense of the world, and I tried to make sense out of the futures field as well, too, and began writing books on it, which I very much enjoy doing. So that's just a little bit yeah. of my uh, history up to this point in time. I mean, obviously, I now have got the tremendous fortune, Tom, of sitting here and talking to some amazing people. And certainly there are, you know, your story, themes that are somewhat consistent amongst some of our people. The notion of the polymath, that again is another aspect about it. People who are interested in many, many, many things almost almost can't be constrained inside a discipline. The centrality of science fiction, again, Richard Slaughter's spoke a lot about for a young boy growing up in post-World War II England, science fiction was was fundamental for him to imagine something different to what they had, which was which was pretty tough. Yeah, science fiction was this place to almost not just escape to, but actually give hope. Yeah, it gives hope and it also helps you to put in perspective to stand back and put in perspective where you are right now and the reality that you're in. Because when I read The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, I was transported 800,000 years into the future. Mm. So the world around me all of a sudden took on a a different kind of uh, appearance. It wasn't so obvious that this is the way things had to be or could be. And there was this a universe of possibilities out there, and Wells just explored some of them. Hmm. It opened your eyes. It's sort of like Spinoza, the great 17th century philosopher, said, you see the world through the eyes of eternity. In this case here, you see the world through the big picture of time, and the present becomes more vivid to you 
by looking out into the future, imagining it, or of course, looking into the past and thinking about it as well. Yeah, this notion of being able to think through time. Yes. To actually go back and understand how historical things weren't predestined. They were individuals made bad or good choices or societies made bad or good choices. And then just pure circumstance created a sort of present out of out of happenstance. Yes, there's lots that we could say on the, the whole issue of time. In fact, I forgot to mention along the way that I did become interested at one point in the uh, philosophy and study of time with J.T. Frazier and his ideas about what time was, how time evolved. That was a, a contributing factor in my thinking about future studies. And in fact, when I wrote the textbook, the first one I wrote for my course, I included as a foundational chapter in it, various theories of evolution in time and history to set the context for thinking about uh, the future and the study of the future. Yeah. And not all cultures conceive of time the same way. Hence, they don't conceive of the future in the same way. Yes, exactly. And in fact, same thing would apply to science fiction, which I'll come back to, is that when you read different science fiction writers talk about time, you get a lot of different ideas and different perspectives on it, because obviously there's been a lot more written on time travel, time machines, than simply H.G. Wells in his original novel, The Time Machine. Great, Tom. In the world around us, there are many, many things happening. And this is a question I like. I like the guests to maybe put down their, their expertise. You know, Tom Lombardo, PhD, uh, Director of Centre of Future, of Future Consciousness. And just talk to Tom, the human being, that how does Tom make sense of the emerging futures around him? Well, as I mentioned a, a, a bit ago... Early on, I wrote two books, and I know this might sound a bit academic, but this is Tom, two books back around 2006, uh, The Evolution of Future Consciousness and Contemporary Futurist Thought. They were uh, my first real serious effort to look at the study of the future and look at the history of the study of the future. Yep. And one basic conclusion I came to was that there were many, many different theories and paradigms that have existed and continue to exist regarding the uh, future studies or the study of the future. There's great diversity, a lot of diversity, and lots of different powerful voices, powerful thinkers, both inside of the field and even outside of the field. Yep. And a second thing I realized was that in spite of the view that the future, the topic of it, is a rather recent development or more recent development in human thinking, I came to the conclusion that future consciousness, our capacity to anticipate, to imagine the future, to have goals, to have desires about the future, all of that, that goes back to our very beginnings of our species and our evolution, yep. that our future consciousness, our capacity for that, is our distinctive empowering capacity of our human minds. So what we see today with this great diversity is really an evolutionary development of a fundamental a set of abilities that humans have had for millions of years since we started to plan and organize and set goals and create strategies and think out different approaches to solving problems. Back about 15 years ago, Wendell Bell and Michael Marion had an ongoing debate in the uh, Journal of Future Studies regarding whether uh, Future Studies was a single coherent field <laughs> or whether it was a diversity and although I really resonated with Wendell, and as I mentioned, we were great friends, I came down and more on the side of Michael Merian on the debate that we have multiple competing 
methods, standards, values. There may be degrees agreement in, along different dimensions, and it depends on who you talk to. But it isn't like we have some singular, coherent mindset, all futurists. Futurists come in all shapes and sizes. Yeah. In fact, uh, I think it was Alvin Toffler who said, everyone is a futurist. Uh, in the sense, uh, I would say everyone has future consciousness and people come at the future many, many different ways. So the sense of the emerging futures field around me is part of an evolutionary, rich expression, a plethora of different approaches. And it is based upon something very distinct in us is that we have future consciousness where we can set goals, imagine, anticipate, plan out, strategize, have hopes and fears about the future, all of that. And that creates for great diversity. Now, I also should mention in that regard that the most influential and widely read form of future consciousness, that a modern form of future consciousness with the biggest communities of enthusiasts around the world is science fiction, mm -hmm. which is in a kind of dissonant and fractured relationship with future studies as an academic discipline. It's kind of an oddity in the whole thing. And it's sort of strange because the earliest uh, science fiction writers, as well as some of the earliest futurists, they actually participated in both ways of thinking. Yeah. That's a way in which I connect in science fiction into the whole scheme of things in that science fiction writers have been writing and thinking about the future and actually have had a tremendous impact on public consciousness, which just adds into the diversity of what we mean by you know, the uh, emerging futures field and how people go about addressing it. I agree completely that it, it's one of the remarkable things that so many of the early, as you say, futures intellectuals were also artists in the space with the dominant form yeah. being, of course, science fiction. One of the things I see now, and I do see it with a lot of our emerging practitioners, and I'm thinking of people like Stuart Candy and others is now, is that we're almost seeing the next renaissance of both people who are intellectual thinkers, but they're also artists in the creation of artifacts about the future. Yes, and in fact, I, I don't want to overgeneralize that there's a dissonance or even an animosity between the two flows of thought, because there are lots of people who uh, resonate and uh, tune in both to science fiction and to um, abstract or scientific or methodological empirical approaches to the future. In fact, when you say artist, I see myself as an artist as much as I see myself as a thinker. Sure. I enjoy, yeah, uh, part of the appeal of science fiction is that it's when it's done well, it's good literary art. Mm. Uh, and when you mentioned Stuart Candy, I'm a little familiar with what his interests are, and I understand what you're getting at there, too. Well, of course, you know, Stuart came from film and now is kind of, you know, moving into the kind of notion that, again, film and, but actually not just, you know, the film for entertainment value, but actually using all the arts. Yes, yes. To actually convey ideas about the future. Yes, yes. And film is very effective because film is multimedia, holistic future consciousness. I mean, you don't mm. just simply get the dialogue, you see it, you hear it. You vicariously participate in it. Wendell Bell, I go back to Wendell again, I keep bringing him up, but Wendell in his uh, uh, two-volume works on future studies came to the conclusion that future studies was more a science than it was an art. And I kept thinking that, no, I don't know. I think that there's an awful lot to future studies, or if it's broadly enough to find, that it does bring in the dimension of art. Part of the reason why science fiction is so effective because it immerses you in this is how a future might feel, how it might look. Mm. It brings your senses into it. And, uh, of course, with the development of special effects now over the last 30, 40 years, you can create these incredibly rich, powerful visions up on the screen of possible future realities, both bleak 
and just yeah. mind-boggling cosmic. That having tensions is actually a healthy thing in a in a space yeah. where things actually rub against one another. So to me, clearly there's an intellectual, uh, technical, analytical inquiry space. There is clearly an expressive, artistic, uh, aesthetic side of it. And a third dimension for me, Tom, is what I call the spiritual dimension because there's something else some people respond to, which is the notion of the the longer, longer frame, the the journey that a species is on, the generations well beyond us. Yeah. And even to go to the metaphysics of, you know, whether this is a broader global plan. But again, thinking of the work of Zia Sardar and Sahail Intalia, that clearly the spiritual dimension, and people like Jay Gary and others, that the spiritual dimension of their work is fundamental to how they have future consciousness. Uh, yes, many thoughts I have on that. I do, What popped into my head, first of all, was Olaf Stapleton, who on one hand was a great philosopher and was a great science fiction writer, but he also, in Star Maker, in a science fiction novel, grapples with the notion of God and the, yeah. the journey of the universe toward hmm. collective, integrative enlightenment and confronting the Star Maker. I've always been fascinated with really long-term futures as well, Mm -hmm. uh, which a lot of people probably aren't, but one of the reasons why I like Stapleton is because Stapleton is, you know, incredibly long term. As mm. another, uh, to bring up another possible, another angle in what you just said there on the spiritual, a physicist over in the United States, Frank Tipler, who grew up as a, I think, uh, a Baptist Christian, he wrote a book back in the 90s called The Physics of Immortality. And it was a book about the future, but it was a book about how the universe was going to progressively evolve into God at the Omega point. But it's very, it's, it's very mind-boggling. Yeah. Uh, interesting, uh, interesting view. Yeah. So, uh, in fact, uh, I, should, I also should mention that uh, Frank Zimbardo, the uh, psychologist, when he has looked at what he calls time perspectives includes as one-time perspective the uh, spiritual long-term futures kind of thinking. Hmm. Yeah, and in fact, there's lots of spiritual theories or cosmic theories about the future too, which sure. I have written about in Contemporary Futures Thought. Yeah, so yeah, I'm not discounting that or, uh, or leaving that out of the picture. That sure is part of the picture. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, very rich domain to yeah. find to find a place that you can do both good work and nourishing work. Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And in fact, if even if you look at science fiction writers besides Stapleton, a lot of them have mystical sides too, even if they have the hard science sides as well. So, Tom, let's now go to part of the interview where I encourage the guests to, if not teach, at least inform the listeners about a framework or a, or a way of approaching your work that is central to your practice. I actually want to talk about two things. And so I'm going to talk about one under this question and the other part under question five. Yep. But under uh, this one, my favorite two or framework, I want to talk about the concept of future consciousness. Yep. And what I mean by future consciousness is our consciousness of the future. And our consciousness of the future it involves all the different aspects of our mind, from our cognitive to our emotional, motivational, personal. And as I have studied and thought about our capacity for future consciousness, it dawned on me that although everybody possesses some level of future consciousness, it's a capacity that could be enhanced, developed, heightened across all different dimensions of the human mind. Yep. From our emotional future consciousness, are we fearful or hopeful, to our cognitive, imaginative, are we creative, can we consider different possibilities? And so over the years, I developed uh, first a workshop, then a course, then a big book, uh, Future Consciousness, The Path to Purposeful Evolution, in which I lay out how 
all the different dimensions of the human mind are involved in our consciousness of the future and how for each of these dimensions one can enhance, heighten that, uh, those capacities, uh, both personally and collectively. I, at some point, had come to the conclusion that what the world needs now, uh, and I don't, I, I'm making a joke here, what the world needs now is love. What the world needs now is heightened future consciousness. Yeah. Now, again, it's something we all possess, but it's something that, can be expanded and heightened upon significantly across the human domain. And that's where I see futurists, science fiction writers, and me with a background in psychology, all of us participating in the same goal, which is in a general sense, which is how we go about enhancing and heightening our future consciousness personally and collectively. Now, that's what the book Future Consciousness is about. And that actually I have done as a workshop, and I've developed a course on it too, where we go through the different dimensions. Let's just take human emotion and key anticipatory emotions of hope and fear and how those affect us and how we can alter or modify them, how we can enhance them. That actually became a workshop I did for years at the World Future Society conventions. And that, like I said, I eventually turned into a big book. There's another idea connected with a future consciousness, which I want to highlight here, which is that I'm an evolutionist and I see humanity as being on an evolutionary journey. I see us as evolutionary beings who exist in an evolutionary universe. The past was different than the present, and the present is uh, the future is going to be different than the present. And evolution gives me a basic framework to understand the flow of time. And I would suggest, and this is part of what I do in the workshop, is that our capacity for future consciousness allows us to purposefully evolve ourselves. That evolution has, at the level of the human mind now, in each of us, acquired intentionality or purpose. We attempt to guide it. We attempt to guide our own personal evolution, and we attempt to guide the evolution of humanity as a whole, and we attempt to guide the evolution of the world as a whole. And so our capacity for future consciousness is the ability that we possess that allows us to direct the evolutionary flow of the world around us and direct our own evolutionary flow and development. When it really comes down to it, as a futurist and as someone who is interested in future consciousness, what I'll say to people is that what I'm trying to teach you is how to more effectively and creatively purposefully evolve yourself through enhancing your future consciousness. And let's see how we do that. People would, I would imagine, respond very positively to the sense that they can purposefully direct theirs and their species' evolution. Right. And I'm going to also assume that it's not completely straightforward or it's not a case of we're not talking about paint by numbers here. There is actually some serious work that needs to be undergone by the person in order to develop it. Oh, yeah. And it's not like I get to a point where I have it. No. Like you don't one day, of course, become enlightened. You know, enlightenment is a journey, too. A way to put it would be that, number one, I suggest that we already are doing it although we don't realize that we're doing it. That is, we're already trying to purposely evolve ourselves. And let's reflect on it and see how to do it better than we presently do it. And that involves enhancing our future consciousness along all its dimensions. And that's going to be ethical, too. It's going to be cultural, too, as well. Uh, it's, going to be a uh, it's going to be an adventure. Because if I say, well... You know, let's purposely evolve ourselves, and we're trying to do it already. Mm. What are we trying to purposely evolve ourselves toward? I mean, that's a question in and of itself. 
You know, what are the ideals that we want to shoot for, develop? Julian Huxley said in a, a famous quote that we have to face the fact that we're in charge of evolution. And the sooner we realize that and, and confront that fact, the better for all concerned. And indeed, that's what I think. I think that we are instrumental in evolution. We are, we are that way because we can think ahead. Animals think ahead very, very narrowly. We can think ahead and strategize and set goals and have values. And we have this cognitive ability to create technologies, and but also create psychologies and sociologies, too. We invent theories about how we should move along. This is a, a set of very powerful capacities. It's not an easy question. I mean, I don't believe that there's some preordained purpose to it all. I think we're going to have to figure that out uh, and test it out. It's a powerful capacity, as they always say in the Hollywood movies. It, it can be used for good or evil. Oh, yeah. Of course it can. Some of the most evil people in the world have had very heightened but very focused and aggressive future consciousness. War is a consequence of humanity being able to strategize and think out ahead toward conquest and toward destruction. Uh, yeah, so it's a double-edged sword for sure. Our colleague Jim Data was says, you know, we don't study the future, we study images of the future. Yeah. And Wendell, of course, said that images of the future are morally based. Yeah, and on that one, I agreed with Wendell wholeheartedly, yes. The moral basis that an individual holds and the moral bases that a culture support do shape significantly the form of future consciousness they have. Oh, of course, yes, definitely. That's part of the holistic nature of future consciousness. A big part of it is our visions of preferable futures, mm. what we think would be good, our visions of utopias versus dystopias, what would be bad and what would be good. Human beings, as part of their capacity for purpose, have values and have preferences. And so morals and ethics and values enter into our future consciousness all the time. I agree with Jim Dater I do not believe anybody can see the future in the sense that the future somehow already exists. So when we talk about our future consciousness, it's not like we're conscious of what the future will be, but we can be conscious and expand our consciousness of what the imagined possibilities of the future could be and what might be plausible or preferable or probable ones. In a sense, yes, we don't study the future because if we were able to study the future, the future in some sense had to already exist. The other one too, which is that, and again, I'm thinking of, of Richard Slaughter here and even, again, Wendell Bell, the notion of being both sceptical of what we think about the future, but also, but also Richard introducing through his notion of critical futures, the ability while we have futures consciousness to actually be critical of our own fundamental assumptions upon which we construct the idea of the future. Yeah. In other words, go deeply into why we think things are good and why we think things are bad, not, uh, not surface, but at the level of depth. Yes, of course. That's part of a highly developed future consciousness will involve the dimension of critical thinking that is essential. It's one thing to imagine, it's one thing to have goals and to prefer, but you have to be able to reflect on it. Is this realistic? Does this make sense? Uh, what are the assumptions here? And if you're a good science fiction writer, you do that too. Can I create a plausible narrative of a plausible uh, future? Uh, science fiction does another thing, and I'm going to come back to science fiction in a little bit, but I always, I always like to bring up on this question of uh, critical thinking uh, two uh, very famous uh, dystopian novels written in science fiction. We by Ziamatin and Brave New World by um, Aldous Huxley, which are usually seen as dystopias. But when you dig deep into them, what those two novels can do is get you thinking 
and wondering, is this really a dystopia or maybe it's a utopia and we're just so dissonant with it, we just don't like it. Yeah. So what we might think is good may not really be that good or what we might think is bad may not really be that bad. I remember somebody once saying that in history, uh, what often happens is what was good becomes bad and what was bad becomes good. Now, I'm, that's a total relativist view, and I'm not going to go that far. <laughs> but you got to ask yourself, well, maybe the fact that I see this as something, a positive direction now, may reflect the values and assumptions I have today. And they may not be the ones that people would have 50 years from now or 100 years from now. Thanks, Tom. Tom, question of how you how do you explain what it is you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? Okay. Yes. Well, here's a simple, straightforward answer to that. Uh, is that I think a lot, I read a lot, I'm a student, I'm a teacher, I dialogue and converse with people quite a bit. I write books and I write articles. I'm a scholar and I enjoy creating. Now, those are very simple elementary things that people can understand or uh, make sense out of. Um, I've always loved to teach and now I love to teach about the future, about science fiction too. I've always loved to think. I'm an obsessive thinker and I reflect on what I'm doing. I'm still a student at 73 years old because I'm always reading and I'm always trying to understand new things. I've been a student all along. I love talking to people. So if you ask me at a very basic level, what I do is I think, read, talk, write, and teach. <laughs> okay, that's at a basic level. And another level, if you wanted to ask me that question, uh, and this is going to be a little more uh, uh, theoretical, is that... What I do is I want to contribute to the purposeful evolution of humanity in the world through my ideas and my impact upon others in my writings. Again, I think there's a bit more to it. I mean, I'm going to ask you to go a bit deeper into that because, I mean, if someone, if you gave that response at a dinner party and then someone leaned forward and said, tell me more, of course, we should all wish to support the purposeful evolution of humanity. Right. To go deeper into it. Okay. I would say that the future or futures is really the only game in town. The past is done with, although you can interpret it different ways, and the present is always zipping by us. The most critical dimension of our lives has to do with the future. And so what I'm interested in and what I try to write about and teach is how to create the best possible future for yourself individually and how to contribute to creating the best possible future for humanity at large, because that's the only game in town. Hmm. I'm hearing you talk about the notion of real both personal agency as to where people can effectively create beneficial change for themselves, yes. but also contribute and support the conditions for the societal change of others. Yes, exactly. Both things together. And in fact, a definition that I came to on the capacity for wisdom involves the notion that it's a capacity for both improving one's own life for the better and improving the lives of others for the better, too. Mm. When, when I thought about what are the basic virtues or capacities of future consciousness, the first one I always list is what I call self-responsibility. Yep. And you just use the expression agency, which probably means about the same thing. Yep. And uh, the first thing I would say to somebody who asked me about what do I do and how do I do it and what am I trying to get at here is I would say that the future may be uncertain and may be risky. And of course, that's perfectly uh, true. But 
you need to see yourself as responsible and involved in its creation, both for yourself and for the people in the world around you. Until you do that, until you stop being passive and stop being a victim of circumstance, you can't really heighten and develop your future consciousness much. You have to take responsibility for the future and see what you are doing that has created your world today and what you can do differently or what you could do into the future that will direct it in a certain uh, fashion. So I'll say, you know, until you accept responsibility, accept agency, that it's there and nothing else is going to work. Nothing else is going to mean anything. And that's something that we have a lot of trouble with because humans tend to blame and find enemies. <laughs> like it's somebody else who's doing this. It's something else is yeah. doing this. No, it starts with you. Yeah. What can you do to make the situation better? How are you participating in the reality of your own future? And that's the that's a key virtue I talk about, a virtue of heightened future consciousness. I almost hear you paraphrasing John Kennedy on ask, ask not what the future can do for you, but ask what you can do for the future. Exactly. Yes, right. Yes, I am paraphrasing him. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Okay, Tom, we're at question five. So science fiction, what do you want to spend your remaining time talking about science fiction and us? Yes, yes. Uh, that was what I had uh, reserved for question five, was uh, my interest in science fiction. Right now, I am writing a uh, multi-volume series on the history of science fiction. I have been an avid science fiction fan, as I've mentioned all of my life, and have read science fiction since I was a kid. And I've ended up teaching workshops and then developing a full-blown course that I taught and still do teach. And I uh, started to write out a history of science fiction uh, back a number of years ago and realized there was so much that it was going to turn into a multi-volume work. And so I'm in the middle of writing uh, this series of one volume's published, two more volumes are finished. And right now I'm, I've begun writing volume four. And science fiction to me there's lots of reasons that I'm fascinated with it. It you know, it gives me a sense of wonder, a sense of the amazement of the possibilities of the universe. It, it has always engaged me, and like it engages other science fiction fans. But I came to the conclusion that it's so powerful and engaging because it's in narrative form. You know, science fiction is stories. And, and people love stories. That is the form in which we most prefer to try to understand things, which is in terms of the narrative and the story. And so science fiction presents the future as different stories, which is part of why it's so popular, why it engages us. And then I thought a little bit more about that and came to the conclusion that you know, science fiction actually does almost exactly the same thing that ancient mythologies did. Because when I looked at what mythology means and what functions it had and looked at science fiction and what functions it has, the only difference I've been ever able to see, and it's only a relative difference, is that modern science fiction is based on contemporary ideas about the nature of reality, and in particular, scientific ideas about the nature of reality, whereas ancient mythologies were based upon ancient theories of reality that often involved deities and spirits and gods and goddesses. Uh, but instead of that, we instead of angels, now we have aliens. Hmm. And so my, my book series is titled Science Fiction, The Evolutionary Mythology of the Future. It's mythology in the same sense in which ancient mythologies were big picture narratives intending to inspire and inform us and tell us about the meaning of life and how to live it, and often involving fantastical cosmic settings. All of that science fiction, except now it's put in a scientifically informed dimension. 
And remember what I said a little earlier uh, about humans engage in purposeful evolution and they possess future consciousness. Well, science fiction serves the function of enhancing our future consciousness because it considers different possibilities, even makes judgments so it gets into values too, and it contributes to the purposeful evolution of our own minds and our own sense of the future. Like if I take, for example, H.G. Wells, who interestingly is often identified as both the father of modern science fiction and the father of modern future studies, because he actually did both, Wells was attempting through his career, and not just his early dramatic novels like The Island of Dr. Moreau and War of the Worlds, but his later stuff like The Shape of Things to Come and Men Like Gods, he was attempting to heighten our consciousness of the future, the possibilities of the future, and attempt to direct the human mind toward what he saw as preferable directions as opposed to negative ones. Hmm. Uh, Wells, whether he was writing fiction or nonfiction, Stapleton did the same thing too, except Stapleton had a much more colossally cosmic mind than Wells ever did. And that's not demeaning Wells, but Stapleton just shot out billions of years. Uh, both of them were trying to raise our consciousness and attempting to inspire and direct us toward a preferable future out there through using narrative and using argument, you know, combining future studies together with science fiction. I very much enjoy participating in uh, the science fiction experience and teaching it to people. I've always had this fascination with, hey, you want to hear an interesting story and loving to go ahead and tell it to them. And what does this tell us about life and about existence and about the future and about the nature of reality. And science fiction will have tons and tons of stories and narratives on different uh, aspects of reality and in nature, like childhood's end, where would it be a good idea if the aliens came down here and transformed this into something much more powerful than we are today? Yeah. What I'm also hearing here is a real Miller is talking about futures literacy, which for him is is our essential ability to be creative thinkers about the future yeah. and to be able to think of the future in many, many, many different ways. Yeah. And good science fiction would be something that widens your abilities to see the future as a different thing and yourself as a different person in that future. Yes, yes. And science fiction isn't just about gadgets. Science fiction is about the transformation of humanity the human spirit and the human mind. That's part of it, too. So think about how we would be different and different possibilities, too. And the reason why I use the word evolution or evolutionary mythology is because science fiction keeps building on itself. It keeps evolving. That's one of the reasons why I use evolutionary. So just like with future studies, we have ideas and theories and concepts and methodologies that keep building on themselves through history as people contribute into the disciplines. In science fiction, we have different writers building on themes and ideas from earlier writers. How many novels have been written on time machines? Probably mm. thousands by now. Yeah. After well. And when I say mythology, one good thing about science fiction versus ancient mythologies, and this will go back to real Miller too, is that we don't just have one mythology in science fiction. We have multiple mythologies. Yeah. We have different visions. And some of them are extremely informed by ancient mythologies, like Roger Zelazny's Lord of Light, for example, which actually has all the Hindu deities in it, as well as uh, River of Gods by MacDonald has all the Hindu deities in it, too. But we have a great diversity there versus in any particular culture, you're going to get one or two or three or four, whatever. It expands one's imagination in terms of mythology. I know because Victor Motti just mentioned that when Victor was talking about his approach to futures that he believes is integral in its way, he also said that, and Tom Lombardo thinks that science fiction operates as an integral theory of the future as well. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I would say, yeah, and uh, Victor and I talked about that through a series of dialogues. 
Yeah, in fact, he was the one who first brought up the question, do you think that science fiction is an integral approach to the future? And the answer would be, yes, it's integral in that it deals with all the dimensions of reality, and it attempts to pull them together into integrated narratives, but there's going to be many different integrated narratives. Hmm. And But the, a key point in it is that whereas the other ones that Victor brought up as integral approaches were Ken Wilber and uh, Zohio and uh, Richard Slaughter too, I think, yeah. Science fiction is integrative narratives. They're not theoretical expositions. They're, they're not nonfiction expositions. They're, they're fictional narrative expositions. So they're integral, but they're of a different mode of consciousness. Because I'll tell you a story with real characters and real settings and give it drama and emotion. But it's still, it's still at a certain level, it is integral. Could you say they are kind of an integral future sandbox? Yes, you can call it a sandbox, exactly. Except one caution I would make is that lots of people have attempted to define science fiction over the years, and every definition comes up wanting. There's always something missing. So even sandbox as a metaphor might not work because you may be eliminating certain things. Yeah. Like I came to the conclusion that even though I call science fiction the mythology of the future, in science fiction, there's other things besides the future dealt with, like alternate realities and mm. alternate. It is a sandbox, but it's a sandbox where you can't even define what the boundaries of it are. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or even if it's just sand. It might not even be just sand. There may be other things in there, marbles, you know, or diamonds or, 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 or string theory or something. God knows, you know. <laughs> Oh, dear. Look, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to wrap this, Tom. I think we could go on for another two hours right. and I'll never finish the interview. Um, look, Tom, on behalf of the uh, FuturePod community, it's been delightful to spend some time with you and thanks for spending some time with us. Yeah, thank you, uh, Peter. It's been really great and I really enjoyed chatting. And yes, uh, we could talk a lot more uh, about, God knows, lots of different things. So thank you for having me and uh, have a good day. Have a good weekend. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.